First Timothy chapter 2 starts off, first of all, he's already a whole chapter into the letter. Long introductions have been a part of ministry since the beginning. But first of all, think of first of importance, it's, it's, he, sa- he settles himself and he says, okay, I'm going to get to giving you advice. I'm going to help you out here. And he talks to Timothy in this particular section. I'm going to read eight verses here in a moment. He talks to him about prayer. But he talks to him about prayer in a way and from an angle I think that will be a little bit surprising. What I would title this section of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is Strange Prayer for Normal Times. Strange Prayer for Normal Times. He's going to talk to him about what to do in the middle of his circumstance. Now, I said strange prayer for normal times because what Timothy is feeling is strange times. Paul has already admitted to him. He's acknowledged the difficult circumstances of the church in Ephesus. There is no one who is shoving everything under the rug. No, everyone has their eyes open here. They realize how difficult the community in Ephesus has been, how inward focused they have become, how much fighting there is, the toll that false teaching and confusion and mission drift has taken. There have been prominent members of this community that have been completely shipwrecked and lost to the point where Paul just says, I had to just turn my hand instead of toward them like this, I had to turn my hand like this and gave them over to Satan. It is likely that Timothy himself feels an anxiety that leads him to the point of sickness. Paul's later going to tell him, listen, you have to start drinking some wine. You're a total mess. That's an actual thing in the Bible. He's feeling anxiety. You ever been anxious about your circumstances to the point of you just sort of feel inner turmoil? Get physically sick? People get physically sick from inner turmoil. Timothy is likely there. He's fearful. And on the evidence... At this particular moment in time, on the evidence, you could make a good argument for pessimism about the future of the church. Well, everybody, we had a good start. It was fun for a while. But clearly, this is not going well. And the strategy that Paul suggests for dealing with this situation is not, or it should not be to Timothy, something strange, but I'm grateful that he presses it here because we so often forget, and I think that we so often forget the direction of our prayer. Paul says, Timothy, first of all then, I urge you to pray. I urge you to pray. It is the first thing. It is the green Lego base before we build anything else as a church. Pray. The text that he uses here, I urge you, is the same one that's used in Romans 12. I urge you, therefore, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, urging, pleading. And as someone who's teaching, you always have that desire. I mean, why would you teach if you didn't want the people to actually get it? Like you want to. But then there's sometimes where you just really want to throw your fastball. You kind of like warm it up. You lean into it. You're just kind of like, you're, you're ready. Kids in gaming might say you sweat. My kids are always talking about sweats. Like, what do you mean? It's like people that try hard. Oh, so Paul's trying hard here. He's urging them. He's sweating over it. 
pray, pray, pray. I think what Paul is going to say and what we need to hear as a church, if anything that I just described about false teaching and about difficulty and about mission drift and about anxiety and about the world around them falling apart, if any of it rings true to us, then we need to hear what Paul says as well. If we are not praying, if we're not strong in prayer, then it matters little where else we are strong. We ought to read this with the same kind of urgency and say to ourselves, what are we doing if we're not praying? What are you doing? That's what what we're going to see from the outset. What are you doing? Now, where the strangeness comes in, I believe, is the direction in which Paul says, here's how you ought to start to pray. So I'm going to read now, starting in the first verse of... of, (laughs) Too many firsts. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 8. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I'm going to pause there. Let's put into practice what Paul encourages. I want to pray because this, this word is more alive than I am this morning, more alive than you is my guess. So let's pray that the Spirit of God helps us to, to, to line up a little more congruently with what's been given us. God, we pray specifically now, in addition to all that we've already prayed this morning, we pray specifically now that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that is soft enough to receive your word. Now, we're never going to fully bridge the gap, but maybe a little bit this morning. Help us to bridge the gap between what we confess and what we experience. We say that this word is living and active, that it's a rule of life, that it is light to our path. And so I pray that we would pay attention to it as such. God, thank you for mercy when we are dull. Spirit of God, move in our midst. Do what only you can do. We're going to be doing a lot of stuff, but if it's just us, Spirit of God, wipe it away. You move in a way that only you can, I pray encourage and strengthen and build up and convict and confirm. Take from Jesus and give to us. That's what we're asking and we're praying in his name. Amen. First Timothy chapter 2, these eight verses. I'm going to say that when it comes to prayer, we've been given two targets and three aims. Two targets, three aims. 
There are things to pray at or pray for, and then there are reasons to pray. And in this case, I'm using the word aim because it's convenient and kind of fun to put with the word target, but to mean it more like a motivation or an outcome desired. Two targets, three aims. Before we dive into the first target, I want to make one small point about one of the words that Paul uses when it comes to praying. Some people have made major distinctions between these words that he gives, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And you probably could gain some things by trying to write these out and saying, well, how should this inform the way I pray? So I'm not saying it's a bad practice. I just don't think that there's that much distinction between especially three of these four words. They're used synonymously multiple times. And whenever Paul wants to describe what praying is like, he kind of batches them all together. Sometimes all in one section of verses used interchangeably. However, there is one of the words, intercessions, to make intercessions, that I believe is the most counterintuitive and strange way to pray of all, and it's probably the one that is most easily neglected. Intercession, one commentary says, is limited to this New Testament letter. This is the only letter where this word is used in reference to prayer. Paul borrows from a word that meant a formal petition made amongst people, usually directed to someone of higher rank, like a king, on behalf of another. And what he grabs here now is this word that has originally meant going before a king or a ruler on behalf of another, and it has taken root It's grown up into the middle of the church's vocabulary to describe the privilege that we have to go to God for others. I would describe it like this, and I think it's the reason that it's the most strange. I also think it's the reason that I've titled this Strange Prayer for Normal Times. Paul commends to Timothy to not only practice but to teach risky, costly prayer on behalf of others. Time-consuming prayer, emotion-consuming prayer, praying for your enemies kind of prayer. Risky, costly prayer on behalf of others is, I believe, a way that we could describe what intercession is here. It's used twice in this book and nowhere else. Paul is making a point here, a specific point about one of the targets of our praying. And I'll just say this at the outset, first target of our praying, those in high position, rulers, you might say, kings. And I want to make the note here right at the outset, he does not give a caveat or an adjective. He does not say to intercede for, to pray for, to give supplications for Christian kings and for all Christians who are in high positions but for all who are in these positions. This would have meant that throughout the history of the church, all Christians receiving this urgent message to do, first of all, this kind of intercessing, intercessing, this kind of praying, they would have had in mind people like Nero. People like Hitler. People like fill-in-the-blank. 
And what God has said, first and foremost, when you're stirred by the anxiety of people who are in charge and ruling over you, you ought to be driven to pray. So one of the chief targets of the church, first of all, first of all, intercede for these people in power. You know, I was thinking about last year. I don't know if you know this, but um, politics in general, um, there's quite a bit of conversation going on. I don't know if you're aware. But more than that, politics in general has become a very expensive game. I first thought about this. I have a brother-in-law who was serving in a DA's office and became really interested in and desired to help make a difference, especially with juveniles who he saw continually coming through from difficult areas of the city that he lived in. And he was encouraged to and then decided to, to run for a judgeship. I'm sure if that's the way to say that. A judgeship. He wanted to wear the black robe. And I was talking to him in the week that he had to decide if he was going to apply for and jump into the election. And nearly all that he talked about, apart from his desire for the job, apart from what he intended to do while he was there, Nearly every single calculation in that moment was about the money necessary for him to even mount a campaign. This was for one judge position in one section of a small to medium-sized city, one of two in the juvenile court. And I asked him, well, what, what is this going to look like? How are you actually going to run a campaign? And he said, well, I probably need to raise between $180,000 and $200,000. And I just started thinking about every single election. If it costs that much just for this, I just started thinking. Like I, I, I overclocked my, my abacus you know, inside and I was just bewildered. So I looked it up. So you don't have to. On the fall 2020 elections alone, it is estimated that $14 billion were spent. Now, that's a lot of allocation of our resources toward putting people in power. I also think to myself that as these things ramp up, as these things ramp up, I, I don't necessarily, I'm not, there's not like a commentary on is this good or bad. I mean, if the, if the roles, we see an importance in the role, then obviously people want to be there, and many times for good reasons. But I also think that there needs to probably be an increasing caution, because Jesus, after all, did say, and I believe this applies collectively as well as individually, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I don't know if you noticed, but we're spending lots and lots and more and more treasure on politics. But here's what made me think. I mean, apart from the pragmatic effect of, man, if we could figure out a cheaper way to do this, where could that $14 billion go? These are usually motivated people who want to be in those positions. They're usually successful people. They're people who have ideals. They're people who have principles about life. They want to change things. And I think like, well, let's keep doing elections. But, you know, where could we allocate these resources? And then I thought of a little bit more of a painful reality. How much time and how much ink and how much fighting do you think was spent on the 2020 elections? How many conversations did you have? 
How many times did you parse out the policies? How many times did you replay the tweets? Or the, the videos on the, you know what I mean? I think about the cost of the collective resources of Christians concerned about, and I think for good reason. Don't hear that. For good reasons, we should be concerned about these things. But here's what I would want to ask. What percentage of the time given in emotion and thought and words, what percentage of Christian time given in thought, emotion, words, ink spilled on the 2020 elections was spent in prayer? I mean, what percentage do you think that we could put on it? Other than in formal situations, I can think of maybe two times that I prayed specifically for these kind of things. What Paul is trying to say to Timothy is, I'm sure you're already talking about it. You shouldn't be a disengaged citizen. No, talk about it. That's fine. Don't be a disengaged citizen. But he says, here's the crazy part about this. You ought to be praying, interceding for these people. Even when you lose, or even if you lose. Praying for leaders God has placed in power, all in high positions, should be a regular practice of the church. As easily as you pray for your grandmother's surgery, as easy as the child prays for their pet, Christians ought to be on the tip of our tongues and at the center of our hearts praying for those who are governing around us. We pray for those governing around us. And I I want to be more committed to this. One of the things that I've appreciated as we've had these prayer nights on Tuesdays is we've come in and there's been a section that we've set aside and we usually just name out some people that we have no idea who they are. We have no idea what their commitments are. Well, sometimes we know their commitments. And we just pray for them. We say their names. And we recognize that God has placed them in that place and the desire and the hope, the prayer that that Paul wants Timothy to say here, here's why, just pray for them that the way that they order and govern the world would allow you to live quiet, peaceful, dignified lives. I think the energy here that Paul has is pray for the people who God puts in power so that they organize a society in which the future of the church can thrive. Now, for some of us, that's a, that's a low aim. We're ambitious people. We want to change the world. We want every law to comport to the law of God perfectly. Now, I mean, and if that happens, in fact, we're all longing for that to happen. That's what's going to happen in the end. Jesus comes back. He totally just, just well, I was going to say he destroys everything. Not everything. He redeems. There's a better word for it. And in one day, everything will completely line up and be congruent with the law of God. But so far, here's what Paul says for Timothy to pray for How about this? What if we're just able to exist peaceably and in a dignified way? That would be what he desires to pray for. So first target of praying, and what I would encourage us to think about. The next time, again, so many of us, I think, are in important ways, engaged in political processes. Don't be a dumb citizen, a disengaged one. I don't mean that. But try to, maybe aim for, to say, you know what? I, maybe I could, could also be strong in praying. If you have a close connection to and are near these kind of things, maybe God has positioned you with more insight to pray more effectively. 
is the church in Tallahassee more effective at praying for these kind of things than someone more disconnected? I mean, that's the question. I know this is a can of worms. I don't know if they're just crawling all over everything now. Are they just crawling everywhere? I, I can't put them back in. That's just one target, though. Can we go to a second target? Second target. Here's who to pray for. Paul says, pray not only counterintuitively intercessing prayers for kings and rulers in high positions, but he says, thanksgiving's for all people. Pray for all people. And then he brings up this all people, I think, is meant to indicate the end of verse 1, this all people, he gives a greater clarification for what he meant by all people by describing the impact and I would say the scope of the gospel. So what Paul says is intercede for the world. Intercede for those who don't know Christ. Get this, intercede for the needs of people you will never meet in places where you will never set foot. The reason we pray for this is because God's mission is that expansive. Pray for all people because God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There's lots of ways to describe this, but intercession, costly, meaningful prayer on behalf of others has to include the idea that we would pray for people across the globe. Pray for people in other places. There are thousands of people groups, hundreds of thousands of people groups, and languages and places across the world that God loves and desires for their well-being, desires that they would be saved. There is one Savior for all the world. Now, we are committed to, deeply committed to, what we would call the Reformed tradition of faith. And many times I've heard passages like this preached as caveat central. In other words, a desire to defend sovereignty or election and confusion around it. And let me just say this. God desires for us to pray for the whole world, and he uses words like all to remind us not of the exclusivity of the gospel, but the expansive nature of the gospel. There are many who will reject Jesus as Savior, but he is indeed the Savior of all. There's no other boat. There will be a lot who hang out on the Titanic waiting for another boat or trusting in another boat. The rescue boat has come. It's on the side of it. It says, for all. Now, why and how and the particulars of who gets in and when they get in and and what God knew and what he didn't know and what he's doing behind the scenes, I still am committed to deeply. But that's another place. I don't want to ever preach the wrong sermon from from the wrong text. We need to trust the Bible that when and how often it tells us to remember the expansive nature of the gospel that we just say it out loud and we're not ashamed about it. So many times I've heard Reformed people say things like this and the entire thing is to explain it away. How about this? When the Bible rejoices in God's knowledge from the beginning to end, when it rejoices in election, when it rejoices in the surety of his sovereignty, When we are called to consider the effectiveness of the atonement, we will do that boldly and loudly with words. And when God insists that we should proclaim the gospel and its 
inclusivity across the whole world and Jesus being Lord of all of the world, we should not mumble there. We ought to be called to pray and ought to be moved to pray big prayers for the whole world. And I feel this maybe more than you do because I'm supposed to systematize my thinking and I want to get these things right. But I remind myself, and if you can jump in with me, then that's great. I remind myself that if I've ever gotten myself to a place where I'm reading certain Bible passages a little bit more quietly than others for fear that it would contradict a good little system that I put into place, then I'm in a bad spot. Our doctrine is the Word of God, ultimately. So what I want to say full-throatedly here is that the church ought to be consistently in the same way that it is targeting all of those in power and all those ruling, saying their names, grimacing and praying if you have to, but praying in the same way there ought to be full-throated, consistent, constant prayers and intercessions made for the whole world. Because one day the glory of the knowledge of God will cover the earth as waters. One day the Lamb who was slain will take his rightful place as ruler of all. There is one Savior for all people. And so we pray. The last couple of weeks as we've gotten together on Tuesday nights in the prayer thing, we, we take a Joshua Project book that has names. Of, we're interceding for the names of peoples and places we cannot pronounce. Because you know how glorious Jesus is? He has come to rule and reign in the minds of hearts of people in places that we cannot pronounce. So one way out of your innerness, one way out of your spiraling self-centeredness Paul says, how about this? Pray intercessions for the people who you are a little suspect of and are even persecuting you, and then also pray for places you can't even pronounce. Pray these intercessions for these targets. So those are the two targets. Three aims I think will go a little bit quicker, but I think we find them here. The first aim, I believe, is so that we can live a particular kind of life. I mentioned it earlier in brief, but one aim of praying like this is for freedom for the gospel. Maximum freedom for the gospel. But more than that, I would say for maximum freedom for us to live Christ-like lives in a public way. It is okay to desire a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. More than that is commanded in verse 8 that we should pray in this way. He says, I desire then, as a summary statement, I believe, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, and then note this caveat, without anger or quarreling. The aim of praying like this is for max freedom for the gospel and for us to live dignified, Christ-like lives. Now, this is difficult, and it's the reason that it has to be commanded. Many things in the Bible are commanded because they're hard. That's why they show up there. How can you get invested emotionally in praying for policies and places and people who are in power without getting so emotionally invested that you end up being an angry, quarrelsome person? 
And again, I'll just say it out loud. What percentage of our words and our thoughts and our time was given in all that was given last year for these things was given in prayer? And I would also say, how many of us would say, you know what really happened as I think about those things? I grew in my ability to have a peaceable heart. Here's what I was. I let my reasonableness be known to all. I interacted with other Christians about these kind of things related to power, and here's what I came away with. I just thought, wow, these people are dignified and peaceable. The last thing I think about with them is quarreling and frustration and anger. So, in the same way that I just mentioned, let's watch the trajectory of our lives. If our doctrine and our systems have gotten to us uh, to a place where we're kind of a little bit red in the face about Bible verses, then we should reconsider. I would also say this. If your commitments and your engagements consistently in an area of life, maybe a public area of life, lead you to be more angry and more quarrelsome and more frustrated and more stirred up of heart, then maybe stop and reconsider because this is not the path of Jesus. It's not the path that Paul sees or foresees for his church. It is not a contest in the world to be the most bombastic. Praying has a way of centering us humbling us, making us powerful in the right ways. So the aim is freedom of the gospel, of course, but a dignified Christ-like life. And I mean, I'll just... I, sometimes, and I've been there. I mean, I've been so worked up about these things. I'm in the middle of conversations about about all kinds of stuff. And I find myself looking back and being like, who were you and what were you doing? Why did you yell about the microbial nature of viruses? What, who are you? You know what I mean? I've been there. But I would just say this. Pray in strange ways in hopes that you can be a normal person. A little bit more made in the image of God. A little more human. A little bit, and, and human in the best sense, not humanistic. But, but image of God-bearing. Pray strangely for normalcy. That's one of the aims. People, like that we would be normal people. Second aim, one of the motivations. We pray like this because God is at work. We ought to pray because God is working. Despite anything else we see, God is working, and there is a kind of power that God is working out in the world that is unstoppable. It's interesting that in the same passage that he says we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions, he later states openly, there is one God. We pray not only so that we can live normally and freedom of the gospel can go forward, but we pray because God is in control. He intends to save. He's working out his plan for the world right under our noses. We pray because we have hope. We pray because we have an answer. We pray because we have a certainty that the world needs. There is a testimony. Jesus Christ came. He gave himself as a ransom for all. He is a mediator. Christians can pray... Because God is powerful, and he listens, and he works. 
I don't know where else our hope would be. We are the definition of the word hopeless. If God is not powerful and is not at work in the world, we should be praying with the aim and the motivation to remember and to join in the fact that God is working. That's what we confess when we pray. Third, and it's tied to this. They're not in contrast with one another. It's tied to this. Our calling is in view. Paul says you should pray like this. You should pray for all. You should pray for people in power. You should pray that the gospel should go forth so that we could be normal people. We should pray because God's at work. And then finally, the, the, the aim and the motivation is his calling. He's on mission. He realizes that if we're not praying like this, that we could be having a mission drift. He says in verse 7, for this, for this, God's work in the world, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I love the parenthetical, I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. I think I ragged on her, I said something to a number of weeks back about how it's gotten into our lexicon, how everyone just starts every sentence with what? Not going to lie. Got to be honest, not going to lie. Got to be honest, not going to lie. That's the true pandemic, is people saying that. <laughs> but here, you know what Paul says? Not going to lie. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Paul goes to Timothy, and he tells them, well, here's what's got to happen. You've got to reorient your heart. Start interceding for people in positions of power. Try to become a normal person. Remember that God's at work. And then remember this, we've been called to be a part of it. We have a mission. One of the things that fervent, consistent prayer does is that it reorients your heart to what's important and to what your calling is in this world. Paul's ministry is in view. He knows they have a calling that must be attended to. And you know what happens every single time you have a church meeting about some sort of crazy infighting? You're getting distracted from the mission, from those who are lost, from those who need to know that there is a mediator between God and men. I remember in my early to mid-20s, one of the first times I ever got to sit on like an elder board. I was so pumped. Just been praying about and thinking about this moment. Uh, basically, I, I felt like, you know, up to a certain point, I still, I'm still there. There's this thing called pretender syndrome that I think everyone deals with. But, you know, you just felt like, well, I'm just going to act in a certain way. I'm just going to fake it till I make it. And then I got to sit in a room. And there's all these people that I grew up with, that their wives, and, uh, their wives had uh, driven me to school when I was like the, a little child. And I'm sitting and I'm in the room. And I remember being surprised that for 45 minutes, we argued about something that was so insignificant, it was unbelievable. It was like, who had the right to put up messages on the billboard in the hallway? And it's not that anyone was ungodly, everyone was fine and stuff, but I just had this frustration in me, and again, I'm, I'm young at this point, and I just, I'm like so vigorous. And I remember just thinking, there's important things in the world, we're a church, like there's lost people, can we talk about how to reach them? There's a Bible to be taught. Can we talk about that? And it says, Paul is saying, okay, Timothy, every time we have to give attention to people who are shipwrecking their faith and teaching different doctrines, I have, every time I have to keep writing you a letter and keep coming there, and every time you're so overly anxious, the mission is being neglected. So we should pray. 
In the midst of, and I'll say it directly, in the midst of tumultuous times, there is more danger in battening down the hatches and just holding on. And one of the first things that is thrown overboard is mission. Because who can justify being risky and costly in mission when the world's as crazy as it is? And Paul's trying to tell Timothy, well, I, I know there's a lot going on there. I know you're anxious and I know this is insane, but don't throw mission overboard. We've been called to this. We're called to go to the Gentiles. We're called to be joining God in his powerful mission around the world. Two targets and three aims. Now, I want to say a couple of things. One, I believe that these are what I would call the normative truths. So I can say them directly. I think the Bible says them. But I also realize that for many of us, we're experiencing things in a different way. Sometimes our emotions and our, the, the temptations that we have, we're stuck in places we'd rather not be, but we're still feeling them. And I just want to say that if you're not at a place where you're totally disconnected from what happens in governance, and if you really are a little bit in turmoil, if you really are cantankerous about that one particular person who won election, you're not alone. Sometimes these experiences and feelings lag. In fact, one of my favorite prayers, it's both evidence that the early church took these things to heart as well as evidence that they were probably feeling what we felt. This is Tertullian in his Apology. It's probably the year 200 AD or so. And he says this, We pray also for the emperors. These are non-Christian persecuting emperors. He said, We pray also for the emperors, for their minister and ministers and for all of those in power, that their reign may continue so that the state may be at peace. This is... Interesting. This is Jeremiah, pray for the welfare of the city because your is in it kind of stuff. But listen to what Tertullian says afterward. He says, we pray that the state may be at peace and that the end of the world may be postponed. <laughs> that the end of the world may be postponed. I find solace in that. And maybe you're going to bring that kind of urgency into your praying. Tertullian apparently felt like it was that drastic. God, we're praying for emperors and ministers because this whole thing is going to hell in a handbasket fast. But he still prayed. He didn't pull back. I think that it's in moments like this that we have to be confident that God is committed to his church in a way that we could never be. It's never going to fail. One voice in the Reformation, Theodore Beza was brought before courts numerous times. There were political circumstances where he could not live at peace and his church could not live at peace. And in one of the times, facing threats concerning his future and the future of the church, he says, Sire, it is truly the lot of the church of God, this church of God for which I speak, it is our lot to endure blows and not to strike. But, he says, may it please you to remember that the church is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. 
Bezos' confidence is that the church is the hammer and any buffeting that comes, they will be worn out and not the church. So if I had to list out reasons to hope or things to be engaged in, I would not point to any particular current event circumstance. I mean, I think some of those things offer some hope. But ultimately, our hope is never going to be in the circumstances that we can create in our little part of this fallen world. The confidence that we need to have in ourselves is that the church is governed by God who has declared that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That the only peace, the only normalcy, the only hope that we have to lead dignified lives is to follow God's commands and to trust Him within the church. The way that we trust Him practically is we pray. Now, you guys ready for a bit of um, serendipity? Session starts on Tuesday of this week in our city. Much of what happens in governing in the state of Florida is going to be happening just a few miles from here down the road. It is one of the busiest times for so many people in our community, including those in our church. And so I want to end this morning by praying for those in power, praying for those in high positions, praying for those who will work tireless hours this week. And I want to pray that they will work in such a way so that we could live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So I wonder if you could join me. I'm going to pray for Governor DeSantis and for all House and Senate representatives, for Senators Scott and Rubio, for workers in the House and the Senate, those who help with policy and those who help with counting votes. And I want to pray this and confess to you that though this is in our Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 2, until I had to prep this, I don't know that one time ever I've really consistently stopped at this time of year and been like, wow, this is really important. We should pray for these kind of things. So I'm with you if this is new. But I think it's fitting, and more than that, it is pleasing to God. I love that. What a, what a gift to us to know this is pleasing in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, we know that there is one God. You are ruling and reigning with perfection. We certainly don't see it all the time, and we don't know how it's working out, but I pray you give us confidence to trust you. And God, I pray this week for all of those who will be involved in really setting the parameters in many ways, setting the tone for the way that we are able to live our lives. We pray for the government of the state of Florida. Pray for Governor DeSantis, that you would guide him, that you would protect his heart and his mind from evil influence, that when or if he is tempted to give up hope or to make bargaining compromises that would not be for the good of all people are not be pleasing to you, God, please 
arrest his attention. We pray for his soul, that you would save him, that you would grow him in faith. God, I pray as well for our senators who will not be engaged in policymaking this week, but are consistently giving voice nationally. We pray for Senator Scott, Senator Rubio. And God, I ask for all of those who have descended on our city, the places they've come from, the constituents that they represent, the laws and the policies that they've been working on for months and months and months. God, I pray for all of the families that are represented, people who have given costly time to send and to help determine the course of our society in many ways. God, I pray for them that you would bless them and honor them and keep them, that your face would shine upon them. May they govern and push forth policy even this week in the coming weeks and months that would magnify you, that would be righteous, and would allow your church to flourish and to preach and to teach unhindered. Pray, God, too, for the, the many people who work in the Capitol, who are vital to the legislative process, who give their, their lives year after year to making sure that these things can happen. God, I pray you give them strength. I pray that they would fight exhaustion and cynicism in these processes. You'd give them hope. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you, and we pray that you would work in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.